On this week's episode of Between Two Beers, we hear Megan Compain's remarkable journey from Basketball Hall of Famer to All Blacks commercial manager and all the best stories in between. And, and Michael Jordan was basically walking down the hallway getting held up by two of his, you know, people and he was done. And that was the game where he hit the winning buzzer of a shot and took it back to game six where I think they won in, in Chicago. So we sort of crossed in the in the hallway. And it was just sort of one of those, whoa. Like if I was on, you know, back at, if it was now, you'd be snapping away. Like yeah. social media. Between Two Beers. Listen on iHeartRadio or anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to We Need to Talk. Conversations on wellness to inspire, relate and enlighten. Now, here's your host, Coast FM's Feel Good Breakfast host, Tony Street. We Need to Talk Breast Cancer. Coast A Show host Lorna Sabritsky takes over. We Need to Talk in light of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Yes, hi, it's Lorna here. I've been a pink ribbon ambassador uh, since I was diagnosed with DCIS, that's early breast cancer back in 2016. I got through that, but this year I've developed breast cancer in my other breast and I'm currently going through chemo. So I'm jumping on Tony Street's We Need to Talk podcast for some special episodes with a focus on this disease during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Welcome back to our fourth and final episode of We Need to Talk Breast Cancer for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And we are joined today by Sheridan Wilson, who is a medical oncologist. Thanks so much for giving up your time today, Sheridan. Pleasure. Now, um, an oncologist, as I know, is a vital person in a cancer patient's life. But a very good friend of mine, a, a smart friend of mine, last night asked me, uh, I know you talk about your oncologist all the time and I'm a bit embarrassed, but what do they actually do? So when you meet somebody, maybe at a dinner party or something, and they ask what you do, how do you explain your role? Yeah, I typically explain that I treat cancer. Um, and often the next question relates to surgery. People think if you are a cancer doctor, you must be a surgeon. Yes. Well, no, an oncologist doesn't wield a knife. Um, as a medical oncologist, the tools of my trade are drugs. And so a medical oncologist is a specialist who helps treat cancer by using different drug-based therapies. It's a little different from a radiation oncologist. Yes, although in my case at least, my oncologist then prescribed as part of my treatment radiation. So do you kind of make that initial assessment before the radiation oncologist even comes on board? Yeah, so actually a lot of the decisions are made in a collaborative way. Um, most women who have a breast cancer diagnosis are presented and have their cases discussed in what we call a multidisciplinary meeting. And in those meetings, there'll be representatives from the various specialties that look after breast cancer. So that would include surgeons and medical oncologists and radiation oncologists. Um, and we look at results, we hear a little bit about each patient's case and then uh, make a recommendation in that meeting as to what therapies would benefit uh, that individual woman. The recommendation or the, the nuanced decisions about exactly what treatment is right for a particular woman do rest with the expert in that specialty. So as a medical oncologist, I would never make a recommendation about radiation treatment, but I would know enough about what happens in, with radiation, and also would have been part of a combined meeting. So I'll have a good idea about what's to come, but it would be out of scope for me to, to make a strong recommend, 
recommendation about radiation, much as it would be out of scope for a, a radiation oncologist to literally prescribe chemotherapy. But we work very much together. It's a team-based sport. Yeah. And you're all on our side, and I absolutely love that. Now, probably my biggest question for you, and I, uh, I this is probably how long is a piece of string, one of those very, very open-ended questions, but obviously I have breast cancer, um, second time round for me. I haven't met a single other person with breast cancer. I've met many people with breast cancer, but not a single other person who has had exactly the same uh, treatment prescription, if you like. I don't know if that's what you call it, but that's what I call it. Um, so how how do you go about taking an individual like me and deciding what my treatment prescription might be? Because obviously it's not a one-size-fits-all at all. It's definitely not one-size-fits-all, but there aren't many parts to health that are one-size-fits-all. And every woman who's diagnosed with breast cancer is experiencing that in a different context. Um, so the uh, the craft of, of medical oncology, the craft of, of any cancer work is to place that individuals' cancer diagnosis into the context of, the, of their life, in particular any other health problems. So we start by um, focusing on the specifics of the cancer, and there's not just one type of breast cancer. No. Um, okay, so can we, can we divert to that? Because obviously, so the, the type of breast cancer that one has very much dictates how you're going to treat that? It's the it's the starting point. So uh, we loosely think about three different types of breast cancer, and uh, that might be breast cancer that's hormone positive or hormone sensitive, meaning that some of our treatments will be leveraging uh, hormone drugs. That's me. <laughs> and we think also about a certain subtype of breast cancer, which is HER2 positive breast cancer, and those cancers benefit from specific targeted treatment that addresses the HER2 receptor, which characterises HER2 positive cancer. And then Loosely speaking, we have a third type of breast cancer, which is negative for those hormone receptors and for HER2. So we're left with chemotherapy. But chemotherapy has a role in in some um, in, in breast cancer across those three t- subtypes as well. So there isn't one type of breast cancer. And what type of breast cancer it is, is our starting point for drug-based treatments. Right. Now, we hear a lot of people talk about triple positive or triple negative breast cancers. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So first of all, to think about um, hormone receptors, the the breast itself is a very hormone-sensitive tissue. That's why it changes with periods and it changes with pregnancies because it's actually normal for your breast to be able to sense your natural hormones. So it's no surprise that when a cancer then develops in a breast, it often has the ability to respond or sense to those same hormones. And we can infer that by looking for these hormone receptors. Hormone receptors are a little bit like a docking station that hormone can attach to. And in the female body, those key hormones are estrogen and progesterone. So those are the two hormone receptors that we look for, what the pathologist looks for them under the microscope. That third receptor is the HER2 receptor. It's got nothing to do with hormones at all. It's related to a different family of growth factors. Mm. But about 20%-ish of our breast cancers in New Zealand have this HER2 receptor. So it's really important 
to know about that on a breast cancer cell as well. So those are your three receptors, estrogen, progesterone and HER2. And if you're positive for all of those, that would be a triple positive cancer. If you're negative for all of those, that would be a triple negative cancer. And does that mean in a broad sense that that one is a uh, uh, has a better prognosis than the other or not necessarily? Not necessarily because there's other things that feed into that um, and that can be how much cancer there is to start with. Mm. So I guess it's intuitive that if someone's got a really large cancer or if that cancer has already spread into lymph nodes, they've got a much higher burden of disease and, and that's strongly associated with the risk of a relapse in the future. So that's a big influence on prognosis. Those receptors are also an influence. We know that, um, for example, triple negative breast cancers are more aggressive and have a higher likelihood of relapse. But how high that likelihood is is modulated by how much cancer there is to start with. And arguably those receptors and the classification into hormone positive or HER2 positive, it's more important for drug choice. For other Coast podcasts with Tony Street, check out Off the Coast or the daily Feel Good Breakfast Catch-Up podcasts. Now back to We Need to Talk. Now, um, I know a lot of people are prescribed chemotherapy, but I'm intrigued by the fact that some people like me have surgery first, followed by chemo, and other people, it's the other way around. Can you briefly explain why that is? Mm, yeah, so in the past, it was uh, a typical approach was to have your surgery first and to use all of that information to plan the next steps in treatment. And these days, we often do it a little differently, and we like to consider giving chemotherapy before surgery. When we're doing it in that order, it's called neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and it's really well suited to some specific types of breast cancer. And those are the higher grade or more aggressive breast cancers, such as triple negative, such as HER2 positive. The reason it's helpful to give the chemotherapy or the targeted therapy first in those situations is that we can use the information about how well the cancer responds to then better design the type of treatment that's given after surgery. Um, it does also allow us to consider using uh, different drugs after surgery or increasing or decreasing the amount of treatment that we give after surgery. So that neoadjuvant approach is a good way to optimise your use of drugs. Um, sometimes it's essential to give the chemotherapy first. So if someone has presented with a breast cancer that's really large, or if there are lots and lots of lymph nodes involved, then actually giving the drug-based treatment first can help shrink things down. And that's a way to better facilitate the surgery that that person needs. Um, the other reason to give treatment before surgery can be if you need more time. So sometimes we're waiting for genetic tests, or sometimes there needs to be a bit of extra planning to coordinate surgery and reconstruction. So you can get started with the drug-based part of cancer treatment while those other pieces of information or that other planning is happening. So it can buy some time. Yeah, nice. Um, for those who aren't aware, um, if... A patient has gone through chemotherapy, and we all know it's basically filling your bodies with toxins, it's killing all those bad cells, but also killing good cells as well. Why do we then need to follow it with radiotherapy? 
Mm. So radiotherapy, um, I have to, you know, acknowledge that I am speaking a bit out of scope because yes. I'm not a radiation oncologist. <laughs> yes. um, I think of radiotherapy as almost sterilising the area and it, it's local therapy. So it's directed mm. to the breast or it's directed to the lymph node stations on, at the base of the neck or under the arm in some situations. And it's really about consolidating those areas and trying to eradicate any cancer cells that might have been hiding away, tucked out of reach of the the surgical procedure. Um, and that has a really big impact on reducing the chance of recurrence in the breast and in the lymph node areas. Mm. Whereas the role of drug-based chemotherapy is more important to reduce the chance of a distant spread of breast cancer. Right. Okay. Good to know. Um, does every breast cancer patient lose their hair with chemo? I've met a lot of ladies like me and we're in the Baldy Club, um, but not everybody does lose their hair. Um, so there are some chemotherapy drugs which are guaranteed to cause hair loss. doesn't matter what tricks you try and employ, the hair will mm. go. There are some other chemotherapy drugs which don't guarantee hair loss, and so there might be quite patchy hair loss, usually resulting in women making a choice to get rid of it because it's still mm. distressing. Uh, and there is a concept called scalp cooling. Uh, that's a device or uses a device which super cools down the scalp to reduce the blood flow at the base of the hair follicle. And effectively, that reduces how much chemotherapy drug is delivered to the hair follicle mm. during treatment. So for some drugs, that can be a way to reduce the chance of hair loss. It's not a guarantee, mm -hmm. and it's actually not something that's universally available. It's a, a, mm. a cumbersome machine. Uh, it's uncomfortable for a lot of women because it's cold. Yeah. It takes extra time sitting in the chair to yeah. have that done. As I said, it doesn't work for every chemotherapy drug, and it's... Um, its availability is patchy throughout the country and largely restricted to the private sector. Yeah, and it's not funded. Correct. So, you know, and pricey. <laughs> I think mm. about $500 a session-ish. I, I, I think, think that's about right. I think, yeah, yeah my oncologist said this, it's not going to work for you. <laughs> so I didn't even uh, go down that track. But, yes, I have seen um, one lady using it uh, when I've been at sessions, so I was kind of curious about that. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your job particularly because one thing that astounded me about my oncologist is she said uh, basically any time of the day or night here's my cell number you can call me yours is not a nine-to-five job is it no cancer doesn't know what time of day it is neither does chemotherapy nor does it know if it's a public holiday <laughs> so if you're looking after people who are receiving chemotherapy or have cancer there needs to be a way for them to receive care when they need it um, in the private sector, that usually involves having a direct line to your oncologist or to their their team mates. In the public sector, there are slightly different arrangements, but still there is a 24-hour service available. Um, around the country, a lot of people use Healthline for after-hours mm. needs. Uh, if people are becoming unwell on chemotherapy, they'll be given numbers to call to make sure that they get input early. What none of us like is for people at home trying to figure it out on their own when they really needed earlier input. Mm. And one thing I found 
pretty scary is getting a temperature um, because I've had, you know, several of them and um, I've been told that if my temperature gets to 37.8, then I need to get myself to A&E or to a hospital if I can't bring it down. It's got to 37.4. We've never got to 37.8. Touch wood. Um, Why is that such a key temperature and what can happen? Yeah, so... We've all had infections before and we know you can get a fever with infection. Mm. So what we're really looking for is signs of a fever as an indication that the body is fighting an infection. And you're at increased risk of that on chemotherapy. We do our very best to mitigate that risk. But if you don't have your natural resilience to an infection, Mm. you can become sick with an infection really quickly. And so that's uh, what drives the advice. If you're not well or if you have a fever, you get medical input because your body doesn't have the same reserve to fight an an early infection. We need to come on in with antibiotics early. Um, Sometimes it's, it's not a serious infection, but you don't wait to figure that out. You try and treat early. Mm. Uh, We don't always know where an infection is coming from when people are on chemotherapy. So we take a bit of an empiric approach um, and and use antibiotics with a lower threshold than would happen if you were seeing your GP with a cough, for example. Yeah. 37.8 doesn't seem a particularly high temperature, but ignoring it could prove fatal, couldn't it? If people don't get urgent input for an infection, yes, it can have very serious uh, ramifications. That's why, again, we don't like people at home trying to figure it out on their own. They need to get medical input so that the right action can be taken. Absolutely. How do you personally deal with it if you have a patient and you provide a treatment prescription or a recommendation about what they should do and they choose not to follow your advice? For example, I know some people choose not to do chemo for whatever reason. Um, Is that hard for you? It it is hard. I mean, there are some situations where the recommendation isn't a strong recommendation, so that decision needs to be a a shared process of decision-making where having heard all of the information, uh, the individual being offered chemotherapy makes an an informed choice. Um, That that I feel is is a process that is robust. Mm. What's much harder as a medical oncologist is when there's a really strong imperative uh, for treatment in a cancer that might be curable, but someone elects not to to follow that traditional advice or that conventional advice and to explore other healing methods. That can be really hard when you then have to look after that person when the cancer does come back and you think, gosh, we could have we could have avoided this. Mm-hmm. But you have to also respect people's own health values. Absolutely. Um, as we acknowledged, everyone comes to this in a different context. They'll have a different personal experience, a different family experience, a different set of beliefs. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell people what to do. My job is to make a recommendation and to be sure that people have all of the information they need to, ma- to make a decision. Absolutely. Look, I have a feeling we could talk about this all day, Sheridan, but unfortunately we have run out of time. I just want to say um, on behalf of myself and and other breast cancer patients listening today and their friends and whānau, thank you so much for all the work that you and other medical oncologists do because I know myself, my oncologist is just a rock for me and um, whenever I have a problem, she is there and she has answers and it makes this whole process just a little bit less scary. We Need to Talk Breast Cancer. Co-stay show host Lorna Sabritsky takes over We Need to Talk in light of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Listen and follow on iHeartRadio.